most popular reasons why people go to church. Okay? Having to do with the relationship with the Lord? Worship? Who said that? Okay? Just for that, Pastor Tony's going to buy you lunch. Okay? He does, he'll say no, absolutely. Okay, this was mine. Okay, this was mine. I have to. That's the reason I went for years and years and years was we had to go. Sometimes I still do that. Surprises you, doesn't it? But sometimes we go because we're not in the mood, but it's proper. It's the thing to do. Okay, here's some out of the surveys that were taken with Pew Forum. This is what they top five. That people in the United States were saying why they go to church, fellowship with other people, find help and comfort in time of troubles, make me a better person, help build a moral foundation, and the number one was coming closer to the Lord. I want to continue with some of the surveys on American churches and evangelical churches. I want to make a distinction. When we talk about uh, America, you know what that is. When we talk about evangelical, evangelical churches by, by that terminology, are those who believe that you must be... Okay, that's evangelical. That is different than just Protestant in general because a lot of Protestant churches, they don't teach salvation by faith in Christ. True? Some of you have been there. Okay, so when you see some of the terms up here where it just says American churches, that's kind of big and broad. But if you see evangelical, that is people who believe, supposedly believe, you must be born again. And uh, in this survey that we're going to share with you, because some of this has impact on us, uh, we're, not talking about, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic or Orthodox churches. They are, they're not included in this. So the attendance... What do you think is the average size of church of churches across America? Hundred? Somebody said fifty? Two fifty? Just to give you an idea, okay, that of the churches across America, fifty nine percent of them are under one hundred. Now, when you start going up to like 200, then you have even uh, closer up to like 75. But this survey just went from 100 to just under 500. That's 35%. So if you look at that, we're in the 90-some percent category as far as churches across America. However, the ones that get the press are the mega churches. Okay, but they're not the norm. The unfortunate part is who usually sets the tone for how churches should operate? Who do, who do preachers often look to and say, here's what we should do in church? The mega churches. But they're not the norm. And they don't minister to the individuals in most communities, and yet they seem to set the pattern on what to do. That has some bearing on what we're talking about today. Okay, so those that are in the, you know, the, the 500 to 1,000, we're getting into now into larger churches, over 2,000, those mega churches. They make up just less than 1%, less than half a percent of the churches in America. And so with this, I found this one just as the average age of pastors in America. It's somewhere up in the higher age. Here's what shocked me. Only one in seven right now in America is under 40 years of age. Now the reasons for that are multiple. Number one, if, uh, in, if you're going to do the study in the seminary and everything, by the time you finish up with your seminary work and all those things, you're pushing 30 anyway, okay, because of the d- degrees in getting master's or, or whatever, or PhDs. So, you know, it goes a little bit higher. But there's other con- there, another reason is in America right now, the, the uh, large, large number of those who are going into ministry are doing a second career choice. Okay. By the way, that's not surprising for those of us who are in churches that preach you must be born again because somebody might get saved in their 20s or 30s and then they may be called into ministry. That's no surprise. But the danger of this is what? What happens to the next generation if we're getting less and less people headed for ministry? And what did Jesus say? Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. Okay, and this has impact on what happens. Four reasons why the people attend the church that they choose. What do you think are the top four reasons why people say, I go to this church? Families there? We would hope that's the case. But remember, this is broad. This is really broad. Okay, it's not just the evangelicals. That should be our priority. Okay, but uh, other things? You said music? 
This, they, that seems to be the discussion in churches now is music. The next couple things that you see are going to be surprising about that. That, that, that music's not a reason. Okay. Here's the top, re- the top number one reason is very, very practical. It's close to where you live. Okay. That's number one reason. Okay. Close to where you live. They agree with the beliefs that is there. Okay. Uh, family or social ties, as you said, and ministry for families. Okay. Remember what we already said. Number one, number two reason why people go to church is the moral foundation for my family. And so that makes perfect sense. Top six reasons why people leave and go to another church. Music. Offended about something. Move out of the area. Well, if the number one reason is because of where you live, probably the number one reason why you change is... Yeah, okay. So change in personal residency. Here's the other, another reason. Changes in the preaching style or the ministry focus. Okay. Another one. Changes in the, the pastoral staff. In other words, pastor left. Okay. Uh, number one, church politics or change in position. How the church, they didn't agree with how the church was operating its leadership or a change in some doctrinal position. Another one, we think this is one of the major reasons why people church or leave churches. And yet, you know, by, and yet I, I think it gets more press than what it's given credit for. And then conflicts with other people. How many people support their church? In a typical church, what percentage gives to that church? It's more than 10%. Okay, it's over 50%. Okay, in the typical situation, 60% of the people within churches say that they give something. Again, what is something? Okay, okay. But, like in churches where it says, okay, who is really supporting the church? Usually across America, 15% of those within the congregation give over 50% of the church's income. So that's not a surprise to us that in typical churches, it's a small amount that are carrying the bulk of it. How many churches are experiencing growth? This was a, going over 10 years. How many churches do you think are growing in numbers? Majority? Minority? Are churches going up or going down? Okay. Six out of 10 are reporting a decrease in attendance. With that... Over half of the churches in the evangelical community that were asked, have you seen people saved? They report that they've seen less than 10 people saved in the last 10 years. Okay? What does that mean as far as church growth? No, we're not, we're not doing it. What does it mean as far as getting the word out? It's not happening across in most churches. The majority of churches reported that the biggest bulk of their growth was transfer growth. Transfer growth is people moving from one church community, whatever. They're basically, I'm saved and I'm moving to another church where you know, that I wasn't saved through that church. But it's basically Christians moving from church to church to church. By the way... Uh, where I was growing up, the most friendly state of Minnesota, it seemed like every four years somebody blew the whistle and it wasn't just the congregations that were shifting. The pastors were shifting. Like every three to four years, you'd hear about 10, 12 pastors, and they're all rotating through. Um, and so that sets patterns. What about Bible study? Remember now, most churches are saying less than 10 people in 10 years getting saved. And most reaction is this. That's because people don't want to study the Bible. Do you think that's true? Do you think that across America, people are saying, I want nothing to do with the Word of God? Interesting stat. 87% of American homes say that they know where a Bible is within their house. Not only that they have one, but they know where it's at. It could be on the coffee table, it could be collecting dust, but 87%. 58% of people surveyed in all churches said they would like to study the Bible more and learn the Bible more. Yeah, that's why probably this doesn't include somebody who's in the Orthodox or some of those liturgical churches because they're told they can't study the Bible. Okay? But 58% of all people who go to church in America say they would like to learn the Bible more. Number one reason why they don't. What's that? Okay, busyness. Okay, busyness is not the number one reason. They don't understand it. The number one reason was this. Why I don't study the Bible more is I feel I need somebody to help explain it to me. 
Okay, now think this through. Churches aren't doing the job of reaching communities. There's a decline in most churches. It, our culture, we understand, is not as Christian as it used to be. But there's still, on an individual basis, people are still saying, I would like to know more about the Bible. But the reason I don't know more about the Bible is I would like somebody to explain it to me on an individual basis. Keep that in mind as we go through. Personal outreach, now we're into our community. Okay, very broad. That is those who claim you must be born again. In this community, 95% have never led a person to Christ outside of a church-established program. An institutional outreach. People lead, I've done it. I've led people to the Lord through VBS. I've led people to the Lord through services and invitations. I've led people to the Lord through some type of institutional outreach or ministry that's organized. The question this is, have I led somebody to the Lord that I have personally made contact with, neighbor, friend, relative, and I have tried to share the gospel with them outside of some organized church ministry? 95% of those who claim to be born again in America, have never done this. And yet, what does the Word of God tell us that we're supposed to do? Be witnesses everywhere, okay? But the majority of us sitting in this room right now would say, you know what, this is kind of where I'm at. And it's not that the world is totally opposed to hearing because 58% of people are saying, I'd be willing to sit and talk to somebody about the Bible if they could show me. Now, again, that's what they say in a survey. So it's the, you know, it kind of just strikes me that the words of Jesus in John chapter 4 were really true even today. Lift up your eyes and look unto the fields, for they are white unto harvest, that God is preparing a harvest. But the problem isn't with God preparing people. The problem is... Let's, let's be real frank about it, okay? The problem isn't the church. The problem is the church, the people. It's us. Is that we put the burden of evangelism on the institution. We put the burden of evangelism on the programs. We put the burden of evangelism on, okay, and I'm not doing this in any self-defense, on the pastoral staff and the deacons. You create something so that I can do my evangelism. You let me be in the reenactment and I've done my evangelism for the year. That's not truly following the Word of God. And so we need to think this through and, oh man, this is scary. Now this is broad. This is broad. But if you look at these where it says good works result in going to heaven, okay, you have you know, a large portion of people saying they agree with that. That's no surprise because we're not talking evangelical churches. We're talking churches and broad. The one on the left is more cultural. Christians have a responsibility to evangelize, to proselytize, to get out the gospel. If you look at this, okay, only 46% of the people say, I agree that we should have missions. Only 46%. That means the majority of people don't think there should be missions. In other words, everybody should be allowed to do their, their own thing. Okay, now, that's churches as a whole. That's why we're, by the way, culturally, we are going to run into a time and an era that as we more and more tell people in kindness, we say, Alice, you need to be born again, because if you don't get born again, you're going to go to... Okay, that's biblical truth, yes? Okay. The, in time, that's going to be called hate crime. That's our culture, yes? That's where it's headed. Okay, um, and so we know that's, here's the one that's shocking. In evangelical churches, 48% of evangelicals no longer believe Jesus is the only way. How do you become an evangelical but don't believe, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but? Okay, what this means is people are saying more and more in Bible-believing churches, that's what we're talking, evangelical, in Bible-believing churches that where they preach you must be born again, that where almost half of the people who are going to those types of churches are saying, you might get to heaven through some other way than Jesus Christ. So does it surprise you to think, well, wait a minute, that, you know, if that's the truth, then if they can get to heaven through some other means, then I have no obligation to share the Bible. Evangelize. 
Because as long as they are sincere. That, so that leads to this one. Nearly half of those under the age of 40 believe it's wrong. It is wrong to try to impose our beliefs on somebody else. Where's the church going in the next generation? Where, what's going to happen? Okay, these are all scary thoughts. There, uh, there's thoughts that you know that are, have really been impressed upon our staff for about a year and a half now. We've been evaluating our church. We're one of those six and ten churches that we have seen a pattern of decline, not a pattern of inclining. And uh, we can say we have seen more than ten people saved in the last ten years. Okay, but we have to be honest and say, wait a minute. Okay, we have lots of programs. Right? For those who say to me, uh, there's nothing to get involved in. It's like, oh my word. That's just unbelievable. Because we would like to do more things. We would like to do a neighborhood night. We would like to do some of those outreaches. We would like to do a reenactment in a few months. But it all depends on getting people involved. So people can get involved. And yet I know that we have institutional outreach. I understand that. But as I went through that study two years ago and then again reviewed it with you in February, in January and February back in, in, uh, in this year when we were going through the philosophy of the church, I was just extremely burdened and convicted to say, wait a minute, am I not leading properly? Is there a better way for us to get the gospel out? We are doing a wonderful job. We, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a boastful way uh, about self. I'm saying this about you as a church. We are doing a wonderful job when it comes to foreign missions. Okay? We, are, we are doing a lot foreign missions. My concern is not foreign missions. It's home missions. It's reaching our community. And if we believe that people need Christ and he is the only way and if there are people who are willing to sit down and study the Bible, if, you know, somebody would sit down, then it's like, well, maybe we can combine this. Maybe we can do something. Maybe we can create some opportunity in an atmosphere where we can try to reach people one-on-one. -on -one. Not just bring them to our church services, but try to meet them where they're at. They, you know, church services are wonderful. I'm all for church services. <laughs> Okay? Otherwise, I don't have a job. Okay, so I'm all for church services. But the disadvantage in a church service for somebody who doesn't understand their Bible is what? If they have a question. If they have a question, it doesn't usually lend itself that people stand up and say, Hey, Wayne, I've got a question in the middle of preaching. Number one, I'm going too fast. Okay? Amen. Okay, number two, if that happened, we would never get through a sermon. We would be here all day, and you already feel like you're here all day when I'm preaching. Okay. So it's just not conducive to say, okay, let's just do a Q&A for every service. But there are people who need that. Yes, no? When you got saved, when you were a baby Christian, did you understand all the aspects of Bible study? Did somebody have to sit down, or did you have to go a long time to be able to let it gel? How can we expedite that? How can we help do that? And so we were, um, we were been thinking, and so here's where my mindset went, and that's what I want to share with you where we want to go and take a change, not a change, an adjustment. Not in something new, something old that programs have kind of veered us off course. I want us to back up, go in reverse as a church body, and say, okay, let's get on the lane we should be better than what we've done. By church history, we were here. We were, at, we, were, we were doing this in our initial years. They asked me in staff, you know, what, what did we do for outreach? Exactly what we're going to be talking about today and next week and then implementing it. We were more focused on a certain approach that as time went by, and we were growing. As time went by and we were growing, we heard more and more of, we need this, we need this, we need this. And it's legitimate. We need children's ministries, yes? Okay. Do we need ministries for the seniors? 
Yes, because they need, do we need ministries where we can talk about teen ministries and youth ministries and let's do a, a music ministry? Those, those things aren't bad. They're not wrong. There's nothing evil with them. But after a while, you can get so busy doing ministry to one another that what do we forget? Our ministry of reaching out beyond us. And so here's where I'm, where I'm going. Just follow along with just a few notes. Okay, the church is birthed at Pentecost. We all believe this. Okay, if you don't, it's because you don't understand that part of the scriptures. But the, birth, the church was birthed. However, was there a concept of a church prior to Pentecost? Was there a plan for the church? Or was all of a sudden at Pentecost, God said, Oh, I've got an idea. Let's give the Holy Spirit now and let's start something called the church. And it just kind of like came to God in at, you know, Acts chapter 2. Yes, no? Did God plan for it ahead of that time? He did. We find out that the church was, was birthed. It was now instituted. It was there. The Holy Spirit's there. There is now the bride of Christ that's growing and growing. And it's going to continue on this earth until the rapture takes place and then we're going to be taken away. Okay, so we have the existence of the church the, the big body. It's going on since Pentecost and it's going to continue until the rapture. And in that sense of the big church, there are all kinds of smaller churches that are operating. Where you get baptized into, where you do communion, where you have a pastor. It's not just this big nebulous entity. It's these local churches. Church of Ephesus, Thessalonica, Corinth, Colossae, Colossae the church of uh, Philippi. You have those, those bodies of Christ. And they're to be functioning. Now with that in mind, what we have is that the church was even in God's mind before the birthday took place. Like you were in thought and in existence even before your actual birth date. There was plans being made. You know, your parents knew you were on your way. What Jesus knew, and the church was conceived in his mind, and the church was in its embryonic form even during Jesus' ministry. He makes comment about it twice. One of the times he comments is Matthew chapter 16. Watch what the passage says. Matthew chapter 16, he's talking with his disciples. They make great statements. They say, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Therefore, he says to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build what? My church. And here's what my plans are for the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, just a few thoughts that go with this. Follow, follow with you if you would, okay? The church is God's idea. I totally resist and rebel against the idea, like Dan Brown and his books and others who try to make fictional history and things like that, that say that the church kind of grew politically in the 100s, 200s, 300s. That's not true. The church was in God's mind. It wasn't some hierarchy in Rome that developed the church. God did it. In fact, it's something that Jesus talked about, and this isn't the only time he mentioned it. Remember in Matthew 18, he says, by the way, if somebody offends you, go and talk to them. And then if they don't listen, take one or two with you. And if they don't listen, tell it to the church. He even gets that in Matthew chapter 18. So that concept of church was already in his mind and it was planned. And so the church belongs to Jesus Christ. Let's, let's, get, let's lay it out here. We believe this theologically. We believe that this entity, this not this, the building structure per se, but this group, the ministries, they are owned by Jesus. They are his ministry. You should be saying amen, amen, amen. Okay, this is not my church. Okay, this is our church in an earthly sense. But actually, who is the one who's supposed to be calling the shots? Jesus Christ. Okay, and he, and he delegates authority and leadership. We understand that facet. But if Jesus Christ, if we were to go to his words and we were to say, you know what, we're not following the words of Jesus Christ, then what should we do? If he owns us, what should we do? We should change. We should adjust to become more like what Jesus said we're supposed to be. Yes? Does that make sense? We don't dare say to Jesus, but Jesus, this is the way we've been doing it for years. Have you ever run into people in a church that say, well, we've been doing it this way for years and years and years? Okay, it doesn't make any difference if we've been doing something that way for years. We have to go back to the Word of God and say, what did Jesus say we're supposed to do? 
because it's his church. We know that because it's, uh, it's his church, because of what he says in this text, the church is important to Jesus. He said he would personally invest in it. He's going he's to propagate it. He's going to build his church. He's going to protect it from the gates of hell. This is this entity that we gather together and we, we function as. It is something that he said, I will build. Now, he's going to build lots of local churches and he's going to build the other thing, but his intent is to increase the bodies. That's his intent. He said that this would, he would protect it so that it would increase, so that there would be, you know, the churches would, would, would not be destroyed by the gates of hell. Typically, churches get more destroyed by the internal than the external. Okay, the, the point that I'm getting is Jesus said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep on building, building, building. I'm going to keep this going. So I don't know where, where else I can land on this one. Jesus didn't intend for us to sit and to stagnate. He didn't intend for us to just say, us few and no more. There's just, there's, biblically, we, we can't do that. Well, I'm comfortable that we never grow and reach other people. Good, I'm glad you're comfortable, but before the Word of God, that's, that's not right. We're supposed to keep on reaching people. Do you agree with that? Okay. So what we do is we say, okay, Jesus has told us, I'm going to assist you to keep on reaching, to keep on going. And, and it's not about numbers. Okay. But numbers obviously help give some indication. But this isn't about numbers. This isn't about us increasing attendance. This is about us doing the job of reaching out in our community more and more and more. If we do, yes, there's going to be some increases, then fine. If we need to, we can satellite, we can do whatever. Okay? Because some have said to me already in the last couple of years, we should stop evangelizing because we have a problem with the parking lot. Okay? We have a problem with seating. Those are problems we can address. Jesus will help us to address parking and seating. There's other things we can do. But we cannot stop trying to reach other people with the gospel. Okay? We can't do it because we can't build anymore. So therefore, we're done. We're, you know, we don't have to worry about growing the Church of Christ. We're off the hook now because you know, the township says we can't expand anymore. Therefore, let's not do any evangelism. Are we spiritually nuts? We need to keep on reaching. That's the, that's the goal of Jesus. Now, going, how do we do that? How do we keep on... How do, we, how do we reach, connect with people and bring them into the body of Christ and help them to grow? Do we do all of this? And all of this is okay and good for us, for our missionary compatriots that we're, part, we're doing it. These aren't bad things. But which one of them do you look and say, that's the most important? If we do that, then we're doing the job. Okay. And it's even more than just giving out the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a term here that's going to expand it even more. Because I know we need to give out the gospel. But if we just give out the gospel, can we see people saved and rack up numbers? There's more to that. Let's use a biblical term. Let's go back and say, okay, let's, let's, yeah, let's go back to basics. Vince Lombardi's team, one of, the, one of the years the Packers got beat pretty soundly in the game, and Vince Lombardi walked into the, into the uh, locker room that Monday morning and said, gentlemen, we're going to start from the very basics. You know, coaches do this frequently. Let's go back to the foundation. Let's go to back. And he said, here's where we're starting. Gentlemen, and he held it up. He said, this is a football that's pretty basic for professional football players. Okay, I, I think what we need to do is go back to some basics. Well, actually, I think I need to go back to some basics. And that's where it needs to start. And what I needed to be reminded about is this one thought. We are given one overriding commission, and that is make disciples. Make disciples. Anybody remember where this is stated? We call it something. The Great Commission. Do you remember when it was stated? 
Okay, Matthew 28. Do you remember in the timing when it was given? Middle, beginning, end of Jesus' ministry? It's his end. It's basically his last words. Okay. Now, he's done it before this. He's been telling his disciples to go out and make disciples. But in his last comment to his disciples, he basically gives them this singular command, that is, make disciples. Okay? The term then occurs over 200 times, that mathetes, that root word of discipleship, making disciples, that idea of, of building people. It's over 200 times in the New Testament, which gets me to think, wait a minute, this is an important concept and, and a driving force here. Jesus spoke about it frequently. His practice was to do it. He promoted the same idea in his very last command. And so to say that discipleship making, disciple making, to, to say that it is a biblical command, it is a biblical concept, is an understatement. Okay. And so what we need to do is say, okay, let's, let's talk about what a disciple. Here, let me give you an illustration. What's an antique? Don't, don't, look, don't look at somebody next to you. Okay. <laughs> When we say antique, what are we referring to? Some person? Something, okay. Antique cars, what's the age of those? 25 years, I'm driving antique cars. Didn't even know it. Okay, so we're, we're you know, there, there's categories. Antiques today, there's antique stores, there's antique shops. You, you go antique shopping, you're basically looking for stuff. That is really old. Back in colonial America, do you know when they, in the 1700s, when they used the word antique, there wasn't anything old, okay, that was around because everything was, you know, in that culture. Do you know what an antique was in the 17 to 1800s in America? Anybody know? No, it wasn't a time. An antique was a person. An antique was any woman over 50 years of age was an antique. Barb. Barb. If I said, how's the antique this morning? I'd say fine. You'd say fine and then you'd spit at me. Okay. My point is this. Terms in different cultures and times, even English terms, do they change? They do. They do. They change. Disciple. We need to go back and say, what was that term when the Bible was first given? What in that culture? When Jesus says, go and make disciples, what was he talking about? Was he talking about just go and get somebody to, you know, repeat, a, repeat some phrase? What did he mean when he said make disciples? What was a disciple? Okay, let's do that. So we go back into history, we go back and say, okay, the term was not just in the Bible, it was given in other writings at that time period. And it was a very common term, this mathetes. What it meant was basically somebody who's a pupil, an adherent, somebody who was a learner, somebody who was a follower. You have all these different scholars that were, that were writing and their philosophies and the Aristotles and the Plato's. They had disciples. Those were people who would sit around them and they would listen to them and then they would propagate their teachings and maybe they would do some modification of it and go on their own and then they would have disciples. And so that, okay, a disciple is a learner. Disciple is a follower. And then that has a concept that all of a sudden we, we understand that, okay, Jesus is talking about those who would, who would listen to and agree with and follow. Now, in the Jewish culture, they had more. When they said disciple in the Jewish culture, when they used that term, it had a bigger, broader, it had a more impacting meaning than just learners, than just students. It meant a little bit more. See, in Jewish system, they had schools, contrary to what some people throw out there, that by the time that the, the uh, post-exilic period, that is now when Jesus and, and the Jewish people are there in that region, resettled in, in Jerusalem, and the synagogues came into play, they had a facility. A synagogue, you could build that, that gathering place for Sabbath worship, and if there was 10 males, Jewish males in the community, you would build a synagogue, and then there uh, at least 10. And then you would gather there, and you would usually hire, what, what did they call the guy who was the teacher? The rabbi. You'd get a rabbi. Now, the rabbi during the week had another job. He was doing some training and some teaching. 
The parents would do the initial teaching and training and they, they were very, very um, clear about they wanted to teach in their culture, Jewish culture, they wanted to teach some ability to read. Okay, and they had a purpose why they wanted to teach kids to read. It was one of the unique cultures, historically. Why did they want their kids to learn to read? So they could read what important document if they had, if they had, a, uh, if they had opportunity to. It would be the scriptures. Okay, the scriptures, the Old Testament. So then they would have that school system that the kids, boys primarily, the boys would go in what we would call elementary years, and they would go to the synagogue school. And the synagogue leader, the rabbi, he would basically be the one-room schoolhouse teacher. Now, when the boys got to be 13 years of age, they were done with their formal education. Unless somebody showed some great ability, some uh, you know, intuitive uh, academic ability, then they would go on to further training. Further training, they would then go to several, you know, maybe a different community, maybe to some other you know, center of learning like Jerusalem, and they would start doing their high school, college. They would be under a singular teacher. Like Paul talks about, he was under Gamaliel. He talks about in chapter 5 and chapter 22 of Acts. And so he was, there was the teacher, per se, that would now teach, and he would be called, you know, the master, the, the, the teacher. And so the Jews would call those young men who would go and sit under that one teacher, they would call them disciples. And then that term came to mean that as those young men would sit with them, they would do more than just learn from them. In the Jewish culture, if you were being discipled, you often lived with or right next to that teacher. There was a real closeness in the Jewish culture, not just academic. And you would start mimicking them, not only in theology, but also in patterns. And it could even reach into the idea of you, you would learn how to speak. You would learn how to, you know, how to um, lecture. You would learn how to dress. You would learn mannerisms. You would learn public you know, interaction with people. So as a disciple in the Jewish culture, you became more than just a pupil. You became, what word do you want to put here? I'm becoming just like that person. A replicate, okay, imitator, okay, that's the, where the Jewish thought, that's their concept of disciple, that it wasn't just academics, it was lifestyle, and it was interaction, and so you became wholly mimicking that person. Now, Jesus comes along and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make, make imitators, by the way, this was impressed. Uh, the ancient Near Eastern world still even has that concept of disciple. Do you remember the missionary who was with us in uh, Cunningham, I think his name was? He was here. He's ministering to Muslims in Great Britain. Anybody remember that night? He illustrated this, how he was going to parks and trying to interact with a number of uh, uh, Muslims and share the gospel, and one of the Muslims challenged him and said, if you are a real disciple of Christ, then why don't you have a beard? And that stumbled that person from listening to Cunningham because in his in Eastern thinking, Middle Eastern thinking, a disciple meant you even dressed like that person. And did Jesus have a beard? Oh, obviously the picture show us that he has a beard. Okay. And the picture shows he had long hair. So obviously, does Bible indicate he had a beard? Yeah, yeah, they plucked out his beard. And so, Jesus, so Cunningham dawned on him, wait a minute, in this culture, that's what disciple means. So if I'm saying I'm a disciple in that Middle Eastern culture, I have to understand that that means I'm, I'm in it totally. So he grew the beard so that that wouldn't be an issue. Illustration of the idea, that's what disciple meant in that Middle Eastern mindset. And still means to some of them today. That you imitate Christ. Now, by the way, how does this affect you and me? We claim to be disciples. We claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Just, and is that just theologically or are we supposed to be following him in all areas? The answer is door number two. Okay. All areas. Okay. So when have we finally hit it on the head and said, I'm discipled enough? What? 
when we get to heaven. In other words, how long does it take to make you and me into a disciple? How long are we going to work at it? Our whole lifetime. So when, we, when Jesus said, make disciples, he is saying, you've got a lifelong process of investing in somebody. Does that make sense? Yes, no? This is really, really important. So at least nod your head. Make me feel like you're with me. Okay. okay. So it's lifelong. And by the way, how long do you have to work at being made into a disciple? Lifelong. Lifelong. In other words, we can't just say, she's reached it, boom, boom. Now, we don't have to invest in her anymore. Oh, we have to invest in one another for how long? Wow, wait a minute. This is, this is, whew. what does a disciple of Christ look like? Okay, I'm not going to get through my material this morning. Anybody surprised? <laughs> okay. Um, head over to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. That's okay. I, I put enough together that I knew I'd go these two weeks. This is all designed, by the way, where we're going to end up with, after we lay this out today and next week, what we're going to lay out to is we have, we, we have gotten our hands on a curriculum and some materials that we're going to use to help do making disciples. Making disciples, you and me, helping one another, and doing more of that personal one-on-one aspect. That personal accountability with one another to help each and one of us in that personal mentoring that we will do more and more of that with, within us. But also while we're doing that with us, we're going to be doing that personal mentoring and reaching out to the people you know. Okay, whoever's giving me a buzz, I, I, I still got a couple minutes. Okay, um, so we're, we're going to, and we're going to give materials and things that will help guide us. In fact, we have uh, picked up and where we're going to go is we're going to provide multiple levels. And I'll show you all this next week. That it's not just, okay, somebody gets saved, we give them foundational materials. But then we have stuff that the you, somebody else with you, you can study together. You know, here for a next year, a next year, a next year, a next year. And so we have, we've got our hands on stuff that we're going to put together and keep on putting together that will give us systematic, intentional materials and tools to help you and me to help one another more and more and more and more on a personal one-on-one, two-on-two basis of helping us to grow. And so we have the institutional ministries, but we're going to refocus and return to where we were and what we should be is do more of those individual small Bible studies more and more and more to help one another. And then as well, have that same material that if you have a neighbor, a coworker, and you say, hey, would you like to sit down and do a Bible study with me? You can sit down and you have this basic material that you can take them through foundations is the first level. And then if they get born again, you're going to take them through and you're, while you're being mentored and working with somebody who's a, a mature Christian, you're helping to bring along another Christian who's a babe in Christ. You're reproducing yourself. You're making a disciple because you're the pattern of them following you as you follow Christ. And so the concept here isn't anything new. But here's what Jesus said. If you're my disciple, we're in Luke chapter 14. I should join you there after I've invited you. In Luke chapter 14, he is in this text talking about what real discipleship is. He's laying it out for his fellows. And look in verse 12. He basically says, you can't be my disciple. You're following me. You've got the terminology. But you're not really my imitator unless this is in your life. And so then he lists off in, in verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, 13, 14, he said, um, when you, uh, oops, my Bible flipped here. Um, 25 is where I want to be, I'm sorry. Uh, I said 12. And there went a great multitude, and he turned to this multitude, and he says, if any man comes after me and doesn't, and he lists off the different, some things, you cannot be my disciple. And he says again in verse 27, whosoever doth not bear his, and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. So he's giving qualifications here. Here is true discipleship. What is it? True discipleship, okay, is this. It starts with making me your priority relationship. You're not an imitator of me unless I am your priority relationship. That word hate doesn't mean, okay, despise, be angry against. It just means prefer. 
to just put one person in front of others. You love your wife, you love your kids, you, you, you love your parents. I don't know about your brothers and sisters, but you, you know, and it's like, okay, Christ has to be before them. I need to do what Christ told me to do even before what my, my mom and dad or be, what my spouse would have. I need to be serving Christ. Okay, we all understand that. That's very clear. He says you need to be willing to bear your cross. What does he mean about bear your cross? There are many different theological ideas that when it talks about bearing your cross, some say it's self-denial. Like Jesus denied him, his own desires of, you know, of, uh, you know Father, please... Um, remove this cup from me, but your will be done. Self-denial. Okay, that's a possibility here. It, some say you have to identify with Christ. Okay, be crucified with me in a public fashion. You identify that I'm following Christ who put God first. That's a possibility. Some say it's being willing to handle rejection like Jesus did. He was rejected for serving God. That's a possibility. Some say it's willing to do whatever God has assigned you to do like God assigned Jesus to go to the cross. So that was his assignment. You need to carry your assignment. That's a possibility. Some would say it's willing to endure hardships. That you are saying, okay, I'm going to do whatever following Christ means, even if it's persecution or if it's any hardship. That's what, it, you know, that's what some say it means. Some, like me, would say it's probably encompassing all of the above. Okay, an aspect of each of them. That says, okay, you need to be willing to do this. You need to be putting Christ first, his will, doing whatever it takes. Then he makes another comment. He says, you need to come after me. Though literally me, it has the idea, keep on following me. Keep on in step with me. Do what I tell you to do. Um, do what I, you know, do what I, what, I, what I want. Act like the way I act. You, you stay close to me. And you're following me. You're just, you know, we're together. This devotion of following Christ is a lifestyle. It's not just a Sunday go to church thing. It's not just, you know, one day of a week. Discipleship, according to Christ, is your life. At home, denying self. At home, preferring Christ. At home, obeying the commandments. At work, acting like Christ. That's discipleship, Jesus said. Becoming Christ-like when you drive your car. Being Christ-like when you're in line at a store and the clerk doesn't know how to ring up stuff. Being Christ-like when all of a sudden a fender bender occurs. Being Christ-like, acting like him when you and your significant other don't seem to agree about certain types of entertainment you want to do. And you know they're wrong. And you're right. Being Christ-like. Being Christ-like when you discipline your kids. Being Christ-like when your parents tell you to do something that you don't want to do. This, that's discipleship. It's 24-7. That's what we're to be making. That's what you and I are to be becoming. And then we're supposed to be helping others become that as well. So then the question you know, uh, that goes on is a little bit further. He says in verse 33, there's another factor. So likewise, whosoever he that doesn't forsake everything, he cannot be my disciple. He says that the third time in this text that he says that you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to put me above what the world offers. The world offers possessions. The world offers popularity. The world offers prestige. And it says, I want to serve Christ more than those things. That's a challenge. By the way, it's probably more of a challenge for us in this generation than previous generations. And for us in America, it's probably more of a challenge, yes? Because we have so much that's tempting us that we think we have to have all this. Or So that's what a disciple is like. Okay, That's what we're supposed to look like. This is an interesting text on discipleship. Go to Mark chapter 10. Some of you are not going to like this. You're not going to like what Jesus says I'm going to give you. I don't like what he said he's going to give us. Okay, so I'm with you. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Mark 10, 28. In this text, Jesus is saying, okay, if you're going to follow me, if, this, if you're making this commitment to me, then here's what you can expect from me. Interesting what he says here. Mark chapter 28, uh, 10, chapter 28. <laughs> chapter 10, verse 28. Then Peter began to say, Lord, Lord, we've left everything, we followed you. He said, listen, verily I say to you, what's verily mean? Surely, absolutely, positively, listen, this is true. What I'm going to say is true. No person, any one of you, any of you who are going to be my real disciples, 
If you've left house, father, brother, sisters, father, mother, wife, child, by house, by the way, some, some interpreters mean, think that means more than just the facility. It means the home. Okay. But then he brings to, again, some possessions where he says, or lands for my sake and for the gospel. He's going to receive a hundredfold in return. Okay. In other words, what you've got is a replacement of that which you find precious. Okay, if you're my disciple, in other words, you haven't lost... Here's his point. It isn't we follow Christ so that we fill our pocketbooks. That's a prosperity gospel. That's, that's a bunch of garbage. Okay. But we follow Christ for real fulfillment. And if I say, okay, I've lived most of my life away from my family, and my kids didn't have interaction with a lot of the relatives, they didn't know grandparents... Did God supply something for them and for me that fulfilled that family whole? You know what it is? To you. It was you for my kids. That's what this text is talking about. He's saying he's going to fill in those areas where you think you've left something and given up for Christ. You really haven't given up and lost. I'm just going to give you something that is going to fill in that vacuum. Whether it be, okay, you've given up an income. And some of you have done this. Some of you have given up a hefty income because you didn't lie, you didn't cheat, you didn't, you know, and it's like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. And he goes on and he adds this. This part I don't like. He says, if you follow me, you can also expect persecutions. Oh, that's a winner to sell that one. That, that's marketing strategy. But he's saying, this is what you're going to have. You're going to have opportunities to really be able to suffer the way Christ suffered. To have those obstacles, to be able to serve. And then you have life in the world to come. This is what he's promising. This is what he's giving. Our big question is, what does disciple-making look like? By the way, there's only one text that's our best text to go to. Anybody want to guess where we're going? Yeah, you got it. This is where we're supposed to be at 10 o'clock this morning. This is where we're not at 1020. Okay. So that means hang on to this. I'm going to pick up next week. We'll get through the bulk of the material. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you here this morning. Please come next week. Hear this out. How we're going to flesh this out. And try to in, you know, um, infuse into our ministry a shift that is even more biblical than what we've been doing. Thanks for listening.